Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. This is Nick, and I'm going to be your host for today. Our schedule actually got a little bit mixed up. Um, we got to move some stuff around, get busy seasons uh, coming around the corner. And so if you saw the update post with the calendar, some of the episodes will be moved around. And for December and January, I believe there won't be any articles because I wanted to just make sure that no one had to worry about that right now. So that's it for our little announcement we'll jump right into the subject and today we're talking about blasphemy of the holy spirit this subject comes up quite often and i thought it deserved its own episode because of um how much controversy and how many questions come up and curiosity right um because this is called the unforgivable or unpardonable sin and so uh that descriptor um has elicited both terror in some individuals, and um, oddly enough, some mocking games for others. There was a trend, gosh, um, a while back where people would uh, make a YouTube video and say, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and it was this whole thing. Um, Kind of a silly game to play, uh, though that's not what the text is talking about. So we'll discuss the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today, and one of the things I want to mention right out the gate is that scripture only notes that there is one unforgivable sin. And yet, many times we will create new unforgivable sins. We will elevate some sins over others, um, and we make them so detrimental that all seems lost. Uh, Yet in the scripture, there's only one unforgivable sin mentioned, and that's the one we're discussing today. And And I've typically seen this brought up uh, in regards to suicide, it's a very hard conversation to have, and we're not going to necessarily have it here today. But I'll say this. You can be forgiven of your sins. Jesus is sufficient, and he is powerful to save. And that's all I want to throw in right there. There's this hope in the gospel, and Jesus is a powerful Lord and Redeemer. Um, so first things first, where does this question even really come from, right? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, it comes from Matthew 12, 31 through 32, Mark 3, 29 through 30, Luke 12, 10, and arguably Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and 1 John 5, 16 through 17. I say arguably because the Hebrews text is actually a text that is used for a particular position on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and 1 John 5, 16 through 17 mentions a sin that leads to death. Um, they say that all wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death, and then it makes that distinction between the sin that does lead to death. And so some have, like with Hebrews, considered John to be speaking about this unpardonable sin, right? Um, so in regards to these two texts, um, you can also have Hebrews 10 thrown in here, um, but we'll get to those in a second. Uh, first, we want to look at the clear text first, right? The Gospels, um, in the way of the different views. Now, the Gospel accounts, because of their nature— uh, relay similar information, right? There are synoptic gospels that are related to each other, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which have a lot of the same 
narratives um, with different details and different emphasis. Um, so I'll be reading through Matthew's account here, and this issue is mentioned in Matthew 12, 31 through 32. Quote, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And again, that's Matthew 12, 31 through 32. So traditionally, there are four views of this sin that are laid out. Um, now, Lewis Burkhoff and Wayne Grudem list out these four positions in their systematic theologies. Uh, Wayne Grudem just quotes Lewis Burkhoff, if I'm remembering this correctly. And so I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. I'm going to utilize both of them and just lay out the four positions. And so um, that's where these are coming from. Uh, so position one, the sin could only be committed while Christ was on earth. Now, Burkhoff, um, he notes in his systematic that uh, the early church fathers, Jerome and Chrysostom, thought of it as a sin that could be committed only during Christ's life on earth and held that it was committed by those who were convinced in their hearts that Christ performed his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, but in spite of their conviction, they refused to recognize these miracles as such and instead ascribe them to the operation of Satan. And that was a loose quotation of Burkhoff. Now, Burkhoff and Wayne Grudem um, say that this view is too limiting um, in terms of um, it has an unwarranted limitation. And they they um, particularly say this on the grounds of Hebrews and 1 John, right? They say that Hebrews and 1 John say that these are sins committed post-Jesus' ascension. Therefore, this text in the Gospels is too limited. So to summarize this view, though, um, it states that the unpardonable sin consists of Jesus' contemporaries willfully and knowingly attributing Christ's miracles by the Holy Spirit to Satan. Now, the second position is that this sin is unbelief, which continues until the individual's end, like the end of their life. Um, in this view, those who have heard of Christ and then die in unbelief have committed this sin. Um, Burkhoff notes that this view is held by people like Augustine and some early Lutherans and some Scottish theologians. Now, Grudem pushes back on this view by noting, quote, on close readings of the verses, that explanation does not seem to fit the language of the text cited, for they do not talk of unbelief in general, but specifically of someone who speaks against the Holy Spirit. They have in view a specific sin, willful rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit and speaking evil about it, or willful rejection of the truth of Christ and holding Christ up to contempt. And again, he cites Hebrews 6, uh, end quote. So you can see how Hebrews 6 is influencing Wayne Grudem's reasoning through the Gospels. He's using Scripture to interpret Scripture here, right? Um, but lastly, he mentions that the context of the passage, uh, that is what the Pharisees are rebuked for, doesn't line up with the view that unbelief is the sin presented. So here, both Grudem and Burkhoff argue that this view is too general when the text is clearly referring to a specific sin. So the first one for them is too limited. This one's too general. Now, the third view is that this sin is apostasy by genuine believers and that those who are born again in some capacity commit this sin. Now, this view would actually take Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 and say, that's connected. That's how we know, because that is an apostasy text, and therefore, that's what that sin is, right? It's it's apostasy. Um, but Wayne Gruden would argue that that's not the best understanding of Hebrews 4 through 6. Um, and then he also notes that Jesus is still responding to the Pharisees and their hard-hearted denial of the work of the Holy Spirit through him. Um, Burghoff also rejects this position, but 
this is this is how I perceive Burkhoff talking about this on the grounds that the regenerate cannot commit this particular sin. Now, this really goes into a larger discussion of one's particular understanding of soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation. And it does kind of go more into your view of assurance and your view of the warning passages. Now, if you want to hear my view on that issue and the warning passages in scripture, you can actually check that out in episode 140. Um, but we're not going to go there in particular. We're just answering this question today, right? I'm trying to stay focused and not get into the weeds here. So number four, the fourth position, which both Burkhoff and Grudem share, is that this sin consists of unusually malicious, willful rejection and slander against the Holy Spirit's work attesting to Christ and attributing that work to Satan. So according to them, in this text, we see a clear, willful rejection of Jesus, his authority and his teachings by the Pharisees, in spite of clear demonstrations of the work of the Holy Spirit in front of their eyes. And instead of recognizing or acknowledging that, they instead attributed that work to the devil. And Grudem summarizes here by saying, uh, quote, the willful malicious slander of the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus, in which the Pharisees attribute to Satan, would not be forgiven, end quote. So for Wayne Grudem and Burkhoff, this view fits with Hebrews 6, in that those in the text who commit apostasy in Hebrews 6 have been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, like the Pharisees have been in the presence of, um, you know, this, this work, but yet their hardness of heart leads them to willfully turn away from Christ, and instead they hold him up to contempt, as uh, Hebrews 6 uses that language as well. Um, just as well, Grudem would argue that First John is actually a different category of sin and not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, so those are the four main views, and you'll likely notice that these views actually are closer than they appear when you actually list them off. For example, the fourth position, the willful rejection of the Holy Spirit's work attesting to Christ and his work and attributing it to Satan is similar to the first position, right? But the distinction is, is that the first point states that this type of sin could only be committed when Jesus walked the earth because it dealt with explicit and undeniable miracles done by Jesus. So those two views are pretty similar, um, but there's some difference in the nuance. And just the same, view two, which says that the sin is unbelief that continues until death, is, isn't too far from the hardened heart rejection that doesn't allow for belief, right? So you could say that view two and view four are linked together logically with the starting place, that is the interpretation of Matthew, is the distinguishing mark. Um, so you could say that view two, unbelief, is jumping too quickly at the expense of letting Matthew speak for himself. Because at the end of the day, what the Pharisees do in view four is unbelief, right? They, they harden their hearts and they don't have belief in it persists till the end. So there's still some overlap here, but I think that if I could boil down the differences, it'd be what is the starting place for what Matthew is saying, right? So the text itself, uh, Matthew 12, 22 through 32, uh, falls into a section that's noted as... Um, uh, the initial responses to the proclamation of the kingdom. And this section can be understood as being made up of chapter 11, verse 2, through chapter 12, through verse 50. Now, in the beginning of this section, we see John the Baptist. He's imprisoned and asking whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus' response is to look to Isaiah 35, 5-6 and affirm that he is the Messiah. He also explains the role of John the Baptist in chapters 11, verse 7 through 19, and denounces the spiritual blindness in those cities that did not respond to his miracles and teachings in that scene in chapter 11, 20 through 30. 
So at the beginning of chapter 12, we find a controversy surrounding the Sabbath before Jesus departs. And then Matthew cites Isaiah 42, 1-4. So following this description of Jesus as the Lord's servant, who has the Spirit, and with whom the Father is pleased, a demon-oppressed man is brought to Jesus, and he is healed. And the text says, quote, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. End quote. So in this text, we find a man who is miraculously healed, and immediately the Pharisees attribute to Satan. Um, they say that this man drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, in verse 24. Uh, the same charge by the Pharisees actually occurs earlier in this gospel, in chapter 9, verse 34, and also in chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus alludes to this again. In chapter 10, by saying, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So this isn't the first time this has come up, and that's significant to note here. Um, and, and here we actually see the response to the Pharisees. First, the Pharisees mention it off the cuff. Second, Jesus alludes to it to his disciples. And third, Jesus responds to it after they say it again. Now, a sidebar here is that Beelzebul um, originates from the Philistine deity in 2 Kings 1, who was known as the god of Ekron. The word literally means Lord of the Flies, and it can be, well, according to John Noland, um, connected back to the old Canaanite god Baal, uh, the prince or uh, Baal of the exalted abode, right? And I wanted to bring this up because a lot of people don't know where that comes from. And it's just interesting to to connect because sometimes we forget that false gods are demons. And this is alluded to right in 1 Corinthians 10, 20 through 23, and in the Old Testament in numerous places. Um, I believe it was sometime in the intertestamental period, that is the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, where Beelzebul became the alternative name for Satan. Um, but anyway, that's kind of a little bit of a sidebar. Um, so Jesus responds to the Pharisees by pointing out that if what the Pharisees are saying was true, then Satan's kingdom would be in a type of civil war. And what leader would willingly plan the civil war um, where an exorcism, which is against the interests of Satan, is performed for Satan and by the power of Satan, right? It makes no sense. Like, why would Satan cast out his own armies um, by the power of Satan? Um, instead, Jesus plainly states that it is by the Spirit of God that he casts out demons, and then he says that uh, this attests to the fact that the kingdom of God has come upon the people. So when we go to verse 31, we read, quote, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. 
So within this context, um, it is clear that this is indeed an absurd and stubborn and slanderous rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit. As we already said, this isn't the first time this has been brought up, and we're seeing it addressed. Now, what's interesting here, and I don't have this in my notes, is that we don't really see how it plays out after the fact. We don't know if they actually committed this sin. Um, It seems like they were on the path of committing this sin. Uh, And so I would say that I fall into the fourth category that we mentioned earlier. And I think Grudem summarizes it well. Quote, The context indicates that Jesus is speaking about a sin that is not simply unbelief or rejection of Christ, but one that includes, one, a clear knowledge of who Christ is and the power of the Holy Spirit working through him, two, a willful rejection of the facts about Christ that his opponents knew to be true, and three, slanderously attributing the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ to the power of Satan. In such a case, the hardness of heart would be so great that any ordinary means of bringing a sinner to repentance would already have been rejected." persuasion of the truth will not work for these people have already known the truth and have willfully rejected it demonstration of the power of the holy spirit to heal and bring life will not work for they have seen it and they have rejected it in this case it is not the sin itself that is so horrible that it could not be covered by christ's own redemptive work but rather it's the sinner's hardened heart that puts him or her beyond the reach of god's ordinary means of bringing forgiveness through repentance and trusting christ for salvation The sin is unpardonable because it cuts off the sinner from repentance and saving faith through belief in the truth. And Wayne Grudem continues, he says, The fact that the unpardonable sin involves such extreme hardness of heart and lack of repentance indicates that those who fear they have committed it, that is the sin, yet still have sorrow for their sin in their heart and desire to seek after God, certainly do not fall into the category of those who are guilty of it. Burkhoff says that, quote, We may be reasonably sure that those who fear that they have committed it and worry about this and desire the prayers of others for them have not committed it. So essentially, if you show concern over your sin and over whether or not you um, are pleasing God and you want to desire God, then you haven't committed this sin because this sin is a willful, extremely hardened heart rejection of God. Now, I made a statement a second ago about I'm not sure whether or not the Pharisees in this instance have committed this sin. It seems like Jesus gave them a warning, um, and you know, you know for a fact that some did. Whether or not these particular individuals did, we don't know. Um, but it is interesting to see how they first bring up he cast out demons by Beelzebub, and then Jesus says, if they call their master this, then they'll call you this. And then um, you see this response. There's that solid, firm warning that continuing on the path of this willful, hardened heart rejection, despite knowing better, despite knowing the truth and just throwing it out the window, is the unforgivable sin. And so there is a link here, I think, between the view of this hardened heart, willful rejection of the truth and unbelief. Um, And you can kind of say that unbelief is like, I don't believe the truth, right? And so you could disagree with my assessment there. Um, I see unbelief as being multifaceted. And that's essentially like you can know something and choose not to believe it. I mean, it happens all the time. And hardness of heart would certainly cause that. And so there's a, a fine link here between um, this this willful hardness of heart and unbelief. And we know that that's unforgivable uh, because anyone who doesn't repent and turn to Christ will not be forgiven. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if you really boil it down, is... Um, is not having Christ. 
but it's not trusting Christ when you have every reason to trust Christ. Like these contemporaries of Jesus, they, they saw everything and they just chose to willfully reject it and still attribute it to Satan. That's, that's pretty bold. Um, and what's interesting about this is that right before this section, right, right before um, verse 22, we have that citation of Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, right? where it's talking about the description of Jesus as the Lord's servant who has the spirit with whom the father is pleased. And then the demon oppressed man is brought to Jesus. Like that's not, that's how this is made to be structured. We have this, this citation, this fulfillment of the old Testament about how Jesus does have this, the spirit and the father is well pleased with him. And then right in juxtaposition to that, you have the Pharisees saying, no, you're doing this by the work of Satan, even though they know better. Um, and Jesus just kind of says, "What? Why? Why would Satan have a civil war against himself? Like, well, how will his kingdom survive? How does this benefit him? How am I benefiting the kingdom of Satan if I'm casting out demons by Satan's power? It doesn't follow. Um, but instead, he says, I have the Spirit, and this is proof that the kingdom of God has come upon you.' And there's a, there's a lot of interesting exegetical points you can make in here. You can look into why he says, "If I cast out demons by Beelzebul." then by whom do your sons cast them out? There's a couple interesting thoughts on that. But um, ultimately, I would say that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit falls into that slanderous, hard-hearted rejection of Jesus, uh, despite having reasons to not have that rejection of Jesus. And I think I would modify my position on it by just adding that this is something that persists until your end. So this kind of connects back to um, that second view, where this is that hardened rejection that persists until you die. Now that said, it's always wise to treat the person, the Holy Spirit, with reverence and be careful what we attribute to Satan and be discerning, be in the word, know the word of God, and continue to be refined by the word of God. Um, as we continue in fellowship with the triune God. So that's it for today's episode. I know it's a little bit shorter um, working on a bigger episode for you guys right now. Um, there was an update on Historia Ecclesiastica. I had to unfortunately shut down or shut down the, the, the project temporarily. I do not have the time or the funds to do what I wanted to do for Historia. Um, I had a very specific and very helpful thorough, well-researched vision. Um, and I simply just do not have the time or finances to, to take on another project like that. Um, and so it is just on hold until hopefully someday it doesn't have to be anymore. Um, I thought about maybe incorporating it somehow into what we have now, but I really wanted it to be its own separate, um, its own separate website, podcasts, et cetera, so that could be all nice and neat and organized. Um, and so I'm still trying to think through all that. Um, if it comes back up, I'll of course announce it and I, I would love to do it. I was really disappointed. I, I was really excited about what I had organized and what I had put together mentally about it already. Um, so it was a little bit disappointing to make that announcement and to even talk about it now. Um, but I do hope to do it. Um, regardless, we have been incorporating more history into Christ is the Cure. Um, because that is a major area of interest for mine. So I hope you enjoy that aspect. I hope you find it helpful and hope it makes you 
think a little bit more critically about these issues as we go through it. Um, for this topic, for Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, hopefully this at least gave you four general views that you can think through as you look at the text. You obviously don't have to agree with me. If you have any thoughts or something I may have not considered, uh, please email me. I would love to hear it. Um, I hold this position. It makes the most sense to me, given the context, but I am open to correcting my position um, based off of good arguments from the text. Um, and again, I was using Lewis Burkhoff and Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theologies for this episode, for those four views, and Wayne Grudem just quotes Lewis Burkhoff. So if you have one, then you have the other, essentially. Um, so that's that. I hope you guys have a great weekend. God bless you all, and thank you all so much for being a part of Christ is the Cure. Um, if you are a listener, uh, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Um, they It helps out, especially since we do get kind of troll ratings and reviews every now and then. Actually, it was kind of funny. iTunes ended up taking one down, uh, and I was surprised that, that they did that, but they took one down because it was just, just a wreck. But um, those reviews and ratings are much appreciated, and if you feel so led, um, consider becoming a patron. I'm hoping to wrap up a current course that's for patrons on how we got the Bible, and then uh, next spring... I want to start another one somewhere in the field of the New Testament. I haven't decided which one, but so far we have um, Crash Course Theology and how we got the Bible, and I want to do more for that. But patrons, you guys really make this happen. Um, it, it means a lot. There's some potentially big updates coming in the future. I can't really say much on them now, but if they happen, it's going to be a game changer, and we'll have to reassess and talk about what's going on and everything else. But exciting times. But that's it. And again, I hope you guys have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.